been so long since we've talked. I know. I oh. feel like it's been far, far too long. I did tear apart my entire beach office and put it back together. Why? I finally got like the setup I wanted in most ways. Like, I I try it. One of the ways that I'm different at the beach is that I try to have as minimal of a setup as possible. Now this is you know still me here, so I still have you know speakers and a CarPlay dev kit and all this you know <laughs> random. I still have a lot of stuff here, but uh, I try to keep it simpler than what what I have in my regular life. Anyway, so yeah, took apart the whole thing, rewired. I finally did like the zip ties in the back, and then of course, as you do, instantly upon zip tying a bunch of cables together, I would realize, oh, I want to put one more cable in there. Uh, yep, that's the rules. Yep, break that zip tie, or just put another one on top of the whole bundle, and then you have like four different levels levels of zip ties simultaneously working with each other. And oh god, poor Stephen Hackett is getting so stressed. You got to get the Velcro ones. Don't use don't use actual zip ties. It's way overkill for wires. The the Velcro ones is much nicer. Then you can just unvelcro and revelcro them. I I have some of those. Uh, the kind I the kind I got for the beach is not a very good one. Um, like I, I I just got some Amazon generic one thinking it would be as good as the monoprice ones I have from a few years back. And it's totally not. The monoprice ones are way better uh, than whatever the generic one is that I got. But uh, I figured they'll they'll be the same, but nope. Uh, Anyway, the problem with the Velcro ties, first of all, they collect tons of dust and hair and everything on the Velcro side. Um, Second of all, they are bulkier. And then third of all, they tend to slide down the cables if it's a vertical cable. Um, you can try to do it really tight, and it'll stay a little bit better there, but it will still slide way more than a zip tie will. I wonder if you're talking about the same product. The ones I'm talking about are smooth on the outside, are very thin. They thread through themselves, and they do not move. You should send me a link to what you're getting. I I wouldn't describe. I wouldn't necessarily describe mine as very thin, but they're and my, mine come in like the the multicolor pack. So you know, it's like you know all the primary colors of Velcro. I don't have any colored ones, but that doesn't mean they don't come. Send me like. Oh, I gotta find it. Hold on. <laughs> it's in your order history. You know, I've had terrible luck with my Amazon order history search recently. It seems like the search of your order history has gotten way worse. Like it won't find stuff based on bas- you know pretty basic keywords that occur in it. Oh, here we go. Yeah, Monoprice one zero six four six three. Those look kind of similar, but they're I've never mine are not that shape. It, I think it's the same concept, but yeah, I think I think the quality really varies because these. I mean, you said these are the good ones, but they look they look wider than the ones I'm talking about, and the slip through mechanism looks different. I don't know. I would I wouldn't give up on the Velcro. I've all the problems you described in them about collecting dust and stuff and not holding. I have not experienced at all. Like they, I I put you know my whole TV is put together with these things, and they do not move. And there's no undue dust collection in there. Not as fuzzy on the outside as these. They, they're actually they actually look like they're made of plastic, but it just has the stuff anyway. Uh, zip ties like actual real zip ties. Those are you know. I, I would never actually use those unless it was something serious and like structural. No, it's great because like you know you you buy a bag of like two hundred of them for nothing, and uh, and you know yeah the downside is whenever you change your mind you got to cut them, and and then you could accidentally cut the cable if you're not being careful, and and then they can be squeezing the cables too much if you tightened it up too much. It's bad if you're an animal, like yeah, obviously, but like yeah. if you use them carefully, it's fine. Oh, it's Velcro. I still think Velcro. But anyway, by the way, the thing I learned when I was a very very small child: if you ever want to undo zip ties without cutting them, a uh, sewing needle is your best friend. I didn't know that. The thing you have in the house, I mean, obviously tons of things will work, but a sewing needle will uh, disengage the little ratchety thing, and you can just take them right off without cutting them. Oh, that's interesting. You can actually like lift up the little latches inside there and loop it back through? Yeah, you just shove the sewing needle between the two little thingies because it's really thin at the tip, and it's wider as it goes down, and it will just open it up enough for you to just take it right off. And everyone has a sewing needle because if you try to use like a jeweler screwdriver or like the tip of a knife, nothing works, but a needle will do it. 
Interesting. Look at that. Life hack from John Syracuse. Yeah. I didn't call them life hacks when I was five. And then you had to undo zip ties and things. And I would undo them, by the way, for the same reason. Well, not the same reason, but I wouldn't have a pack of 100. I might have like one or two zip ties, and I'd realize I need to take it off. And then uh, then I said, there's got to be a way to take these on and off without destroying them. And that's what it is. Sewing needle. Hmm. Today I learned. Be, be careful with wires because you can still poke the wire with the needle. Like, obviously, I wasn't zip tying wires. Like, there is still a danger, but it is much less. Unfortunately, I have way more zip ties than sewing needles. So that's I'm probably still going to keep doing it my way. But, but that's a good hack. <laughs> Friend of the show, Kyle Segray, has things to say about public policy advocacy. Yeah, he just wanted to clarify. I, I listened, just listened back to, uh, quote-unquote, last week's episode. And uh, <laughs> and at one point, I made a blanket statement about how all these companies give to both political parties, yada, yada, yada. And uh, not Kyle's the Gray, but Kyle Seth Gray pointed out mm-hmm. uh, that uh, unlike all the other companies, I think Apple does uh, – this is from Apple's own webpage, uh, quoting now – Apple does not make political contributions to individual candidates or parties, and we do not have a political action committee. They do have lobbyists, but they don't give directly to candidates, and that is not true of most other big companies and most other tech companies. So credit where credit is due. We will put a link in the show notes to Apple's public public policy advocacy webpage where you can read about this. Hmm. I actually didn't know that. That's, That's interesting. Yeah, I didn't know that either. I had assumed, as you, that they do the sleazy, you know, advocacy and, and um, what's the word I'm looking for? The um, the thing where you send people to, oh, lobby. There it is. Lobby. They, no, they have lobbyists, but they don't contribute directly to candidates or oh, parties. Oh, 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 that is a fine They have there. fewer lobbyists than other companies. There was one thing that came up before these uh, before these hearings showing how many lobbyists the various companies have. They have on the, their below average number of lobbyists among their peers. But I like Google and I, I think, Facebook and a bunch of other companies give directly to candidates. Like they give the maximum amount you're allowed mm-hmm, for corporate mm-hmm. donations. They don't have a political action committee, a PAC, which is another way to get money to people. So maybe it's a distinction without a difference. But I think it's significant enough that I shouldn't have lumped them in with everybody else. And then tell me about uh, Big Sur and Catalina and APFS. I haven't tested this yet, but I've seen multiple reports that Mac OS 10.15.6, which is the latest Catalina update, now understands Big Sur's new APFS volume format. So you won't get that uh, message in the finder when you reboot into Catalina that says, I don't understand this disk format of this weird disk here. Um, I haven't had my... I have a bunch of stuff running that like prevents external drives from mounting. Like back in the old days, I wouldn't just... I would just not turn on my external drives. But of course, all my drives are now like SSDs and they're bus powered. So if they're plugged into my computer, they're powered. But uh, that's that application I talked about a while back, Mountain or whatever. You can just tell it not to mount them automatically, and so they don't appear. So I, I never see that message. But in theory, if I was to mount that drive now, it would be able, it would be mountable and visible in Catalina, which is nice because it's always annoying when the old operating system can't see any something about the new operating system and vice versa. So uh, assuming this is true, I'm very happy. Yeah, I um I haven't tried booting Catalina. Oh no, I did boot Catalina earlier tonight. And I don't remember seeing that message, so I think that's accurate. I don't even know, uh, but that that is good, and because that 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 notification, I forget exactly what the verbiage was we talked about it on the show, but it was it was alarming to me because I guess I just didn't know what was happening. And once you think about it, it's like oh, okay, that makes sense. But at the time, I was like, oh god, what happened here? <laughs> so uh, so yeah, I'm glad that that's uh, fixed, improved, etc. 
Anytime you get that uh, disk isn't recognized or uh, error or anything like that, it makes you freak out a little bit because exactly because exactly. <laughs> like what do you mean disk isn't recognized? You know the old macOS would always say, "Do you want to initialize it?" And you're like, oh. "No, wait, no. What are you talking about? Don't it's perfectly good disk. Why are you telling me to?" Yeah, and if you if you weren't paying attention and you just click the wrong button, yeah, macOS used to be a lot more dangerous. All right, so we'll start tonight with Wade Trigaskis, who writes, if there was a legitimate way to distribute iOS apps outside of the App Store, would any of you actually do that? This could allegedly be an Ask ATP, but uh, we already have a full slate of Ask ATP, and I, and I didn't put this here, but I agree. I'm assuming it was John who put, who put this here. Mm-hmm. It is an interesting thought. So for me, I had recently sunset uh, vignette, but Peakview is still in the App Store. Sunset? Sunset, sunset, big sir. Um, so anyway, so I still have a peak view in the store. And in fact, I'm waiting for a review on a very small update now. And I was thinking about this a little. I don't know if I would like, maybe I, I would, I'm leaning toward no, because for me, I don't know what it would really get for me other than like presumably reduced, um, a reduced or an improved cut, I guess I should say, you know, I would get more than 70%, but then I would have to manage all the things I don't really want to manage like payments and so on and so forth. And since it's not like a subscription app, like overcast, I don't necessarily need to have a, a more direct relationship with my customers. So I don't think I would, but Marco, I have a feeling that you might have a very different answer here. You'd be surprised. And there, I mean, there's so much more of a larger discussion here around, you know, the 30%, the 15%, all that stuff, M- much of which is happening <laughs> because of, you know, the antitrust hearings and everything. Yeah. The discussion around, you know, Apple and potential anti-competitive or antitrust issues with the App Store has focused a lot on the 30%. And many people have suggested, well, what what if they just lower the commission? Could that fix things? Like, and would that would that be, you know, good enough? Apple has even focused a lot of their kind of defense or rebuttal that they're not being anti-competitive on the 30%. And I think they do that intentionally because they know that if they can reduce the discussion around other angles of it, they not only can they control the message, but this is an area where what they have is slightly more defensible because they can point to the other, you know, big app stores that all copied them and be like, hey, look, Google charges 30% or whatever. But it's really not about the 30% so much. 30% is a ton. Don't don't get me wrong. It is a very large commission. It is <laughs> substantial, and, and I don't think they deliver enough value to have earned 30%. And they would love for everyone to only talk about the percentage. Because if you're only talking about the percentage, you are not talking about all of the other problems that are actually anti-competitive. The percentage isn't that big of a factor. If Apple dropped it from 70-30 to like 85-15 across the board, for, so every app could be 85-15, that still wouldn't make companies like Netflix or Hey want to have their services in the App Store or, or use an app purchase in the App Store. The 30% is not the problem. I don't think you would get somebody like Amazon or you know Netflix, HBO, all these big companies. They wouldn't participate in, a, in, a, in an app purchase at any price. Even if Apple somehow made it 0%, they still wouldn't do it because there are so many more angles here that are about things like integration with your existing system, things like control, owning the billing relationship. Like There's so much stuff that you can't do 
if you're using Apple system, there's a lot of things that Apple system simply can't do or doesn't do well. Um, it's you know certain purchase methods or even just like managing what purchases are available and accounting for them. There's a lot of things that Apple system either doesn't do at all or doesn't do as well as other systems do. Um, any kind of admin control, like we have no ways developers to refund people who purchase our stuff. So like if I get an email from somebody saying, oh, I, I purchased Overcast Premium, I thought it would do this, I get an email almost every day from people who say, I purchased Overcast Premium so I could send files to my watch. It doesn't work. I want a refund. That's not what it does. I don't know where they're finding this information. I don't I don't think I have. Did I ever charge for that? I don't remember. I don't think I ever made that a premium feature. But regardless, <laughs> I frequently have a need where I wish I could issue somebody a refund. And instead, I can't do that. I, all I can do is direct them to Apple's page about how to maybe possibly sometimes get a refund. And it, that's a terrible customer approach. You know, like, I, I wish I could offer refunds. Um, I have no way to tell if someone's charge went through. Like, like when I like for our ATP.fm member CMS, we use Stripe, and I'm able with Stripe. There's a whole dashboard I can go into, and it's super easy for me to either use their dashboard or build my own on like on our admin backend. That can do things like see what a customer has been charged. See, like if their credit card was declined, if the charge actually was issued or not. I can give partial or full refunds for any payment they've made. Like there's so much control that we have in Stripe that I don't have in, with Apple's in-app purchase system. So there's a lot of reasons why people would maybe not want to use Apple's in-app purchase system that are not just about whatever percentage they happen to charge. Now, the percentage they charge is high, for sure. Even the 15% that you can get on you know years two forward on, on subscriptions, even 15% is high. I mean, for Stripe, we, we pay something like 3%, um, and that's, that's pretty typical for most payment processors. The, the percentage is important, but all this other stuff, all these angles of control... And being able to have your own billing system and being able to own that customer relationship, being able to look up what somebody paid to solve customer support problems, being able to issue refunds yourself to solve other customer support problems. There's so many reasons that Apple system is not good. There are things that Apple system literally can't do that make certain businesses possible or not possible. Like I was saying in the past about how if I wanted to have some kind of system where you like, you know, paid overcast 20 bucks a month and then I split it up between all the podcasts that you listen to, I currently have no way with Apple system to associate your purchase with how much money I've actually received from you. So I can't split up your money without like I can estimate and get and get it wrong. I don't really want to do that. I can put myself at risk of actually losing money if that if that happened, and I wouldn't be ex- incredibly accurate with where people's money was supposed to go because there's no way for me to look up an Apple system. How much money did I actually receive from this user this month? I can't do that. Um, there's all sorts of other things like that where Apple system, it's great in certain ways, and it's really not great in others. And Apple wants us to keep talking about 30% to avoid talking about all of that other stuff. The real problem with the App Store being anti-competitive, the real thing that's going to make Apple like have to get regulated by governments because they clearly won't do it themselves is going to be the rules about not letting other people use their own purchase systems. That's the key thing here. And Apple doesn't want us talking about that because that would cost them a lot in control. And that would make them fully lose, like the, all the big companies that they're already mostly losing, like things like you know Amazon, Netflix, etc. Um, but ultimately, for the App Store to to have significantly reduced antitrust problems, 
they have to allow apps to use their own purchase systems if they want to. And they can put as many restrictions around that as possible, except what they've done so far to date with the stupid reader app distinction, which is really just we're going to allow the big apps to do it because we have to because they're big, but we're not going to allow you know new small apps to do it. That's that's a terrible distinction. They have to get rid of the reader app distinction that says you're allowed to do it, but you're not. They have to allow apps to mention, go to our website to sign up. They don't have to let you link out. They don't have to let you build it into the app. But they, I think they need to do those two things. Get rid of the rule that lets only some apps do this at all and relax the rule about mentioning it at all and allow apps to mention like in text in the app, go to our website to sign up. And, and that's it. That would solve so many of these antitrust problems. They won't do that unless they're forced apparently but that's like we're not asking for like you know alternative app stores you know side loading all that i don't i don't think those things would be very good for the platform i I don't i don't think the iphone would benefit from side loading or alternative app stores uh i will eventually answer this question by wade by the way (laughs) which is about this it was about distributing apps outside of the app store like if you know side loading or you know something like that became possible i will get there in a second but basically i don't think that would be good for the platform at all Having the App Store and having forced app review for all apps on iOS in particular, I wouldn't accept this on macOS, but on iOS, I think it, it, it does make sense and the platform is better off for it. However, I also think that rule about external payment systems needs, needs to be relaxed. And I'm not even saying it needs to be relaxed very much, just a little. Let all apps do the Netflix trick. And let the Netflix trick be slightly nicer for users in that let the app actually say in text, you may sign up on our website. With that, with those changes, again, these problems mostly disappear. Anyway, so going back to the question about whether I would distribute my apps or any apps of mine, I guess, outside of the App Store if there was a way to do it. No. At least nothing I've, nothing I've currently written, not Overcast for sure. Apple's payment system does come with some significant benefits. And if they were actually forced to compete more with others, maybe they'd make it even better. I choose to use it willingly, and I'm glad I can use it, because Apple's payment system is really, really good for the case of Overcast Premium, where I need to know like roughly if somebody paid or not, but I don't really need to know how much they paid me. I don't need to know exactly how much I earned from their account after any possible foreign currency conversion that, you know, I don't need to know any of that. And if a couple of people get through, you know, fraudulently who paid me and then got refunds and kept the account anyway, you know what? That doesn't matter that much to me. I'm not going to lose money over that really. Like, you know, they could fill their uploads with 10 gigs of files and I would lose, you know, just look at whatever S3 charges that amount of cents per month. It wouldn't be that big of a loss. Apple system is good if you don't need all that precision about who exactly bought exactly what and did they you know, get refunds or chargebacks or anything. If you don't need that kind of granularity, it's fine. And then you get the benefit of the incredible ease of use it gives users. The reason why I've always liked Apple's purchase system is that it's super easy. Your billing info is already entered. This is, you know, even before like Apple Pay was a thing on websites. Your billing info is already entered. Everything is already ready to go. You just authorize it with a password or touch ID or face ID or whatever, and it's purchased, and that's it. And so as a, as a user, I love that, and as a developer, I love that because I like having things be really, really easy to purchase in my app. That, and then all the things that Apple removes, con, removes from my control, for the most part, 
is stuff that I don't really need to deal with with this particular app, with this particular offering of, of, a, of a paid thing. I don't need to deal with most of that stuff. So it's totally fine. And I will, I gladly, for this app, I gladly accept the trade-off of I will accept all of Apple's shortcomings. I accepted that they're 30% forever. And then with, you know, most recently, now that, now, now that I'm entirely uh, subscription-based on iOS, I, I accept their, you know, 70, 30 the first year and 85, 15 subsequent years because I like not having to deal with all that stuff for this particular app. And I like the incredible ease of use that people have for buying it. And that allows me, ultimately, I believe, to make more money from Overcast Premium than I would if I had to have my own payment system and people had to enter their own billing details and everything like that because I think that would cause more friction and I would lose more sales. So I think ultimately I'm making money with this that I probably wouldn't be making doing doing a different system. And I'm able to have all that ease of use of all this stuff I don't have to really deal with that they deal with for me. That being said, this doesn't apply to everything. I also sell ads. And I sell ads only on the Overcast website, not through the app. I don't have any in-app purchase. I actually do accept Apple Pay for them, <laughs> all through Stripe again, because that's like a different thing. Like that's offering something on the web that is mostly, you know, from people who are not using their phones at the time of purchase. They're like, you know, people who work for big podcasting companies who are spending a marketing budget from their computer at their office and they're going to websites. And I need to know then who actually paid and if anybody did get you know chargebacks or refunds i need to know that because it you know it's larger sums of money for a small number of purchases and it matters more that's a different thing though for the actual app i am very happy to be in the app store and to use the app the in-app purchase system because it does get me more users and more purchases than the alternative would but that's only because I have this like set of trade-offs and priorities for this particular app and for this particular purchase for Overcast Premium where that makes sense. That doesn't make sense for everybody, and it never will. And they're always going to have antitrust problems until using alternative payment systems for apps that don't want to use in-app purchase become possible. And then Apple can try to actually compete on their merits. <laughs> Why didn't you put Forecast in the Mac App Store? I know that's not an apples to apples huh, uh, comparison, but w- why not put Forecast there then? The main reason I didn't put Forecast in the Mac App Store is that Forecast is free, and I don't have any purchase in it. I don't have any way to make money in it. It's just easier on the Mac not to. Because, like, you know, if, if I'm dealing with the App Store, I'm dealing with, on the Mac, I have to deal with things like sandboxing and and the, you know, weird limitations of, of the Mac App Store apps and everything. And I didn't want to deal with any of that, and it didn't make sense for a free app to to go through all that trouble. However, if Forecast was a paid app, I would do it through the App Store, just so I wouldn't have to deal with any of that stuff. John, I know you don't have iOS apps, but you could have elected to do your own distribution for your stuff, So, but you ended up in the App Store. Yeah, I put this question in here, and not as an Ask ADP, because I think, like as Marco has just uh, discussed, it's very relevant to the antitrust stuff. And uh, in particular, well, two aspects. One that Marco also kind of touched on, like when, and many people have mentioned, like when Apple is asked about you know, or uh, they offer themselves when describing here's the app store and here's why it's awesome. They they go through their whole thing and they say it used to be you had to pay retailers a huge amount, but then they skip right to the app store, right? Which is another silly thing for them to do because they have a good case for explaining the app store without skipping over the multiple decades where people sold software over the internet without the app store, right? There's no reason to skip from retail to the app store. You can say, yeah, people used to sell, uh, you know, software from their websites. 
but then they had to do payment processing and they had to deal with it themselves. And it was even harder before Stripe happened and it was harder for users. And if a user wanted to buy five applications, they had to enter their payment information into five different websites. If like Apple has a case that can be made about the App Store. Apple made this very case when they introduced the App Store. Like it's it's right there in front of us. And as Marco said, it's easy for people to buy things on the App Store. It's why users like it and developers like it because there's less friction between people's money and your thing. Uh, and, you know, part of that is the foundation of that is Apple sort of parlayed its success in digital music into the App Store, because why did they have all those credit card numbers? Oh, it was your quote unquote iTunes account, right? You know, and like they people trusted pe- people have been giving Apple money with their credit cards for a long time. So it wasn't so much of a stretch to say, hey, you get a new phone, you can use your Apple ID, enter payment information. Yeah, yeah. Like it's all it was all, you know, snowballing, right? Uh, and they only had to do that once. And once they do that, any app in the app store, they're going to say purchase, 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 purchase. Like it's just, you you know, you don't have to, every time you purchase an app, you don't have to enter your credit card information in that developer's website, right? So there's a, a strong argument to be made for the value that the app store provides without making some completely disingenuous argument about how in the bad old days, uh, right before the app store, you had to pay CompUSA to put a cardboard box in and you get like 1% of that sale or whatever the heck it was, right? Uh, that's not, the predecessor that the app store was competing with it was competing with direct sales through websites now direct sales through websites had the advantages that marco listed before which is like oh you have the customer relationship you can easily issue refunds so on and so forth and obviously the bigger the software company the more important that is because they probably have more sales and more applications Uh, and for a company like adobe for example you know you may you're probably not just going to buy one adobe app if you're going to be a big customer for them so you give adobe your payment information once and then you can buy all sorts of adobe things year after year right so it's not so bad um but for small developers it makes more sense um and i don't i'm not quite sure why apple doesn't make that pitch but i think everybody knows you know you know either at the top of their mind or just instinctively that's why that's what makes the app store good and this question about Alternate app stores, it, if you think about it for more than a couple of seconds, leads you to some weird scenarios, which is why I wonder how this will work out, uh, legally speaking, right? What would it take to have an alternate app store? I know there are ones like the jailbreak app stores of like, was it, Cydia? And there's a whole, a whole bunch of like things that are out there that do this. But I think we'd all agree that's a little bit, <laughs> a little bit sketchy and weird and not a mainstream thing, right? If there were an alternate app store, it would actually need substantial, you need to be jailbreak, which I think we can set aside and say no one wants to compromise the security over their phone that much for an app store, right? You didn't have to compromise the security of your computer that much to buy things from a website. So why, you know, that's just a curiosity, but like, say there was like a legit ultimate alternate store for your phones, right? That would basically necessarily need support from ios support from apple for it to reach feature parity with the app store in all the areas that the app store is good oh i want to be able to automatically install applications with a single tap without doing anything a weird jailbreaking without defi- you know, like you can't do that on a phone without the privileges that apple offers to the app store like there is no way like from a website to install an app onto your phone and you know probably thankfully there is no way to you know get it you know how would you get how would you bootstrap the process how do you get the the store application like the app store comes on our phones right but how would you get the alternate store application onto your phone in the first place it would probably have to be hosted on the app store right 
Otherwise, there'd be this convoluted install process. And then all the things that I'm talking about without sort of support from Apple in the operating system for alternate stores, every alternate store would be at a massive disadvantage because nobody wants to figure out how to sideload or use Xcode to put a thing on or do some weird big page or jailbreak. Regular people do not want to do that. So you've just narrowed your customer base to this incredibly thin sliver of tech nerds. Everyone else would be like, oh, I don't know how to do that. I'll just go to the app store because it's on my phone to begin with. So Apple would need to actively support alternate app stores. Now, the only way they would ever do that is if the law made them do it. And laws that make companies do technical things never work because the law doesn't understand the technology. The technology changes too fast. And it just, like, when I think about alternate app stores, I think, no one would want to use an alternate app store. Users wouldn't want to use an alternate app store because it can never be as good as the app store is in all the ways that the app store is beneficial to everybody involved, right? And that's kind of disappointing, but also sort of, you know, if I, this is kind of like Microsoft and IE, you know, the argument that it's part of the operating system, but also the argument of like, look, uh, well, I don't know, it's a little bit different because it was easier to put alternate browsers on. But anyway, alt- alternate app stores would need good support from apple and apple will never provide that unless they're forced to and if they're forced to they'll do it weirdly or badly because the law will not be able to say and you have to do a good job and it doesn't really make any sense so i feel like the alternate app store thing is a pointless thing to consider sideloading isn't because you can say look in special cases for particular kinds of applications it's great to have an out and a way to install things but for the mass market case of like i bought an iphone now i want to get a bunch of apps we're never going to be in a world where there are a bunch of app stores all of which are as easy to use reliable and trustworthy as the app store because apple doesn't want that to be the case if apple changed their mind and figured out some way to make more money doing that, yeah, they can definitely do it. Like, it's not a technical barrier. It's just sort of a, a business case barrier. Uh, as for my particular things distributing outside the App Store, the only reason I didn't do it is because I'm not, like, my two apps are small and, you know, barely hobbies, right? Uh, both of my apps would benefit from not being in the Mac App Store because I wouldn't have to sandbox them, and I wouldn't have a bunch of stupid limitations. Like, to just give one example from... Switch Glass, I implemented a feature where you right-click on an icon in the, the little app switcher, and the bottom item was quit. Because it's just handy to be able to quit an application from the app switcher, right? I implemented it, and then it just totally didn't work. And I was like, oh, yeah, you can't do that with Sandbox, and you cannot tell an arbitrary application to quit. You can whitelist them and say, I want to be able to send the quit Apple event to these five applications, but you have to ship that with your binary and I'm not going to list every application in the world, right? <laughs> so there's one example of a feature I implemented. Granted, it's like five lines, but I implemented it before I discovered that it can't be implemented. People ask for it all the time. I have a fact item on it. If I wasn't in the Mac App Store, it would have that feature. Uh, so there are reasons, that, especially for my weird utility-type applications, that I would love to be outside the Mac App Store. But, but because it's just a little tiny hobby, and I'm not going to sell a lot of these things, but I do want to sell them, I'm not going to set up a payment processor for the piddling amount of money these things make. I'm, I'm not going to set up my own store and have a customer relationship and blah, blah, blah. It's just, it's not, I don't have enough sales and I never will have enough sales to justify the effort for me to make my own sort of software store outside the app store because I'm not a Mac app developer who's trying to start a Mac app development business. Um, so for me, no, I wouldn't do it for my Mac apps, even though 
I think about it from time to time. I'm like, like maybe when, when, like if I go through like six months with zero sales, maybe I'll just make it a free app and put it outside the app store and uh, (laughs) make it not sandboxed anymore. I also thought maybe like, oh, well, you know, I'll just, uh, I'll build a non-sandbox version for my own personal use. In practice, I don't. Partially because of the convenience. I, I bought my own application, which is another weird thing that you do if you're <laughs> anyway i bought my own application uh and in every mac that i'm on i just download it from the mac app store again it's just more convenient than doing it the other way and having a special build it's just easier to have just one build um and for ios if i ever made an ios application it's even more the case because like i said there's there's no way there will ever be uh another app store that is as friendly to customers as the app store. So if if I want to get any kind of sales or any kind of downloads, I have to be in the app store. I wouldn't be in the quote unquote alternate app store. Uh, But if I was making some weird, like, you know, the ability to sideload, even like some weird, you know, the ability to load an application, even if it's a long multi-step process, but it's officially supported by Apple. That's what I mean by sideloading. I would do that if I had a good idea for a strange iOS application that needed to violate some rules or something that, the app store enforces but that the os doesn't because that's another distinction you have to remember on, on ios it's not like if you can sideload suddenly you don't have sandboxing but if you can sideload what you one thing you don't have to deal with is i don't like your metadata i don't like this kind of application i don't like that you use the private api all that crap you don't have to deal with if you're outside the app store but once you get onto the phone it's not like you have a free-for-all like there's a difference between jailbreaking and sideloading so anyway if i was on ios unless i had one of those weird type of applications that was techie and just a one-off like a dev tool or something i'd be in the app store um and yeah wade i know this is probably maybe not exactly what you were asking about but i think the heart of it is you know would we be in the alternate app store would anyone not without massive massive un extremely unlikely support from apple to make the alternate app store be able to do the basic things that an app store does I have been dabbling with, and I think John has even longer than I, a very recent sponsor, as in two days ago as we record this, but last a sponsor from last week, Hey, uh, which is the new email service from uh, from Basecamp and formerly known as 37 Signals. Is that right? 37? Yep. I think that's right. And uh, I have to, I, I have thoughts. Let me start by saying everyone started gushing over this new email web app slash iOS app. And, and obviously this made a lot of, uh, this made a big splash when, uh, when it was released because there was a big kerfuffle that we've covered on this show with Phil Schiller amongst others about whether or not, Hey, has to support an app purchase and so on and so forth. Um, and I don't know, all the things I heard at first ago were reinventing email. Oh, okay. Sure. You know, the Jennifer Lawrence, uh huh. Okay. GIF. Um, okay guys, whatever you say, sure. You're reinventing email. And I didn't try it. I didn't sign up. I should have signed up and gotten a sweet username, but I didn't because I never do. And and then a couple of weeks back, I did sign up and I started playing with it. And I played with it for a few minutes with no email coming into it except one that I sent myself. And I was like, oh, okay, I guess this is interesting. And then when they were a sponsor, I wanted to play with it some more. And then I found out we were going to talk about it because I think John had asked us to, or maybe I had asked us to, I don't recall. And so I actually forwarded um, my, it's not, it's Google apps for my domain, but I'll probably just call it Gmail. I forwarded my, my Gmail account to, to, Hey, to really try to live the life of a Hey user. And I have to say that 
I really didn't think the hype was justified before I started really improperly using it the way they intended to. Go figure. And <laughs> I still am not entirely sure the hype is justified, but a lot of it is justified because I actually am really impressed with this. And I think it's really, really clever. And I'm really... I really want to switch the switch my email to to use Hey, or at least I do right now. Um, I'm not going to do that until it supports custom domains, which I've said many many times is coming. But I am very impressed by it, and outside of some quibbles here and there, most especially M box I M B O X, which ugh, just is so cringy. Uh, I have a few other quibbles. By and large, I really like it. Before before I go into details about what makes Hey different, would the two of you, perhaps starting with John, since you've had it longer, like to discuss any like initial impressions, or if you'd rather just dive into the nitty gritty, we can do that. Um, one thing about initial impressions that I think is important for many services, and I think a lot of services do this, is uh, creating FOMO about getting your username. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is it's just a usually a pretty good marketing tool on certain types of people. Me being one of those types of people, obviously not Casey, because <laughs> you have the FOMO, but not enough for you to go get your name right. Yeah. Um, so, like the the general case of this phenomenon is a new service appears, and even if you have no interest in it whatsoever, if it's free to sign up, you just sign up to reserve your name, just in case it turns out to be the next big thing. So you've got your name. So many services that I've signed up for, that is the explanation. The one service that I didn't do that for, I regret massively. Instagram, I didn't sign up for years and years and years because I thought I would have no use of it. And when I finally did sign up, like seven years after Instagram existed or whatever the hell it was, like way late I signed up, like no remote normal variation of my name existed and I have this horrendous username on Instagram and I regret it. I should have just signed up to to get the name. I still barely use Instagram, but anyway. Boy, that was a mistake. Um, But... uh, (laughs) Basecamp, being the smart uh, company that they are, takes this one step further where, yeah, I was going to sign up for Hey, no matter what. I, in fact, I signed up for the, like that early, you know, they said, hey, if you're, in, hey, huh? <laughs> if you're interested in our, in our email thing, uh, send, us your, send us your current email address and we'll let you know when, you know, they have had like a, a thing where they let people in slowly, right? I was on the waiting list. I was fairly early on the waiting list to get in this because I wanted to get my name. And it was, you know, sign up for free, get your name, so on and so forth. Um, but when they actually came out, they said, okay, if you sign up and I think if you, if you pay, if you like subscribe, cause it's like, there's a free, like 14 day trial or something. And then after that you have to pay, if you pay for your name, uh, pay for pay, subscribe for like a month or a year or whatever you want to subscribe. I forget what the terms are. Um, and then later you just stop subscribing. You say, oh, this isn't for me and you still don't pay anymore they'll hold your name for you forever. So once you get your name, you don't have to worry like, oh, if I just if I let this if I let the subscription expire, someone else can steal my name. It's always there waiting for you to come back and start paying again, which is smart on multiple levels, but especially smart for people like me who are like, well, that's it. I'm going to instantly pay for my name. Uh, and, you know, so that's and for email services, like Casey mentioned not wanting to go for it until it's on your domain, which I totally understand. This type of stuff is important because the email is not only the linchpin to many different things, but also it, it's kind of like your address or like for most people who don't have like their own their own like, you know, web servers or websites or anything like that. It represents you online and having to change it is a gigantic pain, right? So if someone does sign up for Hey 
they'll want to keep using it for a very long time and not, you know, they, they won't want to enter that as their email address and something and then just say, oh, well, that was when I was first trying out Hey, but I decided I didn't like it and I've lost that name forever and can never get it back. So I think that's cool. Um, and in general, most of their policies, uh, the policies around Hey and the reason I was so willing to sign up for it, it's based on the company's reputation. Um, all the stuff that Marco talked about that you can't do on the Apple App Store in terms of customer relations are exactly the things that Basecamp is good at. Having good customer support, being really easy with refunds, like all, all that stuff, knowing the customer and their relationship and whether they paid you or not, and like just all that stuff. Uh, you know, it's it's back to the old world of buying things where when you buy from a brand that you know and trust, like this brand loyalty to, to like the particular maker of the thing that you're buying, whether it's a car manufacturer you really like or a department store or a software maker, right? These companies build their reputation on how they treat their customers and how good their products are. And it also means that if there's some random one person company that you never heard of, you don't have that established trust and it might be more dangerous. But the flip side of that is, when you're buying from a company you know and trust a lot and have experience with their products and like them, you have some assurance that everything will be fine and that company is empowered to do all the good things that you like them for. In the App Store, you're paying Apple and that's it, which is great for the small companies because you're like, well, I don't trust them, but I trust Apple, right? Or it's mostly great for small companies. The app can still be a scam. But on the flip side, the very best companies are forced down to sort of the the level of the, the the level that Apple enforces for everybody. It's like you can't give amazing customer service because Apple won't let you, but nobody can give awful customer service because Apple won't let them. I didn't want to turn this to back into the App Store topic, but anyway, all this is to say, <laughs> I was totally on board with trying out how. Even though my history with email things is, I try them all. And I pretty much reject them all. But I love seeing people do new things with email because every once in a while, you know, one of them hits with me. Uh, Marco, you seemed a lot less enthusiastic about Hey. In fact, I, the only reason I think you would have looked at it at all is because after the last show, I said, hey, let's look at Hey. hey. And you're like, you hey. grumbled about it. And you're like, oh, I don't want to look at, you know, because you, you do not seem like you're constantly looking for new innovations in your email. Did you <laughs> sign up and try it? I signed up, but I haven't really done anything with it yet. Um, I haven't forwarded any accounts to it or anything because I, you know, I, I have, I, I'm like the typical, like, worst case scenario for a service like this because I have my workflow, muscle memory for all the built-in, you know, mail apps on Mac and iOS. And and that being said, like, I've I've not been incredibly happy with Mail.app ever since iOS 13. Mail.app has been very increasingly buggy. Um, it's still even in the 14 betas, still has the bug where new messages sometimes stop appearing at the top of the list. They appear at the bottom of the list, so you don't usually see them um, until you go like back out and back into your main inbox. So it's kind of amazing. I, I still can't believe there, this bug has been there since iOS 13 beta 1, and here we are through the iOS 14 beta cycle. It's still here. <laughs> um, and then Mail, I don't love Mail.app on Mac uh, that much either. Under the Catalina version, I've had massive performance problems especially my laptop, and under the uh, Big Sur version on the laptop, the performance problems remained, and they ruined the whole interface with Big Sur's new stupid toolbar design. So I'm really not incredibly happy with Mail.app, so I should be more on board with trying something new, but I there's just so much inertia that I feel behind the way I've always done it, 
And I'm not a person to just like play with different tools for the sake of it. Like I, I'll do that with, you know, certain things like microphones, <laughs> but like for the most part, <laughs> I don't enjoy doing that for most things. I, I enjoy like really moving into one and settling in for the long haul. I'm like a tool monogamist. I, I really want to just use like the one thing that I find to be great and just stick with it forever for things that I don't really care that much about. And email is one of those things. I am not an email power user. I don't practice any reasonable email philosophy or filing system or getting things done or anything like that. I just use email crappily like everybody else, and I don't care that much about it. Email is not something where I, I ever want to like spend a lot of time to learn a new system or learn or even install, let alone learn new apps everywhere. I've also historically not been a fan of um, of webmail type things, like web-based email. I really love native apps, and while Hey has apps, they are web views. And you know, if anybody can make a good web view, it's Basecamp. Like they, you know, they know how to make web views really well. They are amazing with web technology. But I still do love fully native apps way more. Um, I also don't want to move stuff because I have a lot of inertia in the system, just in like my archive. Like I, I mentioned um, last week, I believe I mentioned that email search is very important to me. And the reason why is because I've been using the same email app for forever with the same email account on the same email IMAP server forever. And so I know that I can go in and do a search and find some you know email that, I was, that, I'm, that I'm trying to look for from like 2008 and it's there. If I start switching systems, I, I lose that history. So I, I just, I don't care enough about tweaking my email workflow to jump through all the hoops to install something new, move, migrate to a new system, learn a new system, learn the new apps, and also then lose that you know, that big history and then have to, what, search two places or somehow import my entire email archive into Hey, which I don't even know if that's possible. So it's just, I don't know. Should I really be pushing myself to change this or does that sound reasonable to you? It, it does sound reasonable and... I mostly agree with you. It's funny because I love my dear friend and co-host of Analog, Mike Hurley, so much. But him spending just hours upon hours going through different email apps, I always thought was the most preposterous thing in the entire world, particularly before you could switch a default email app, which I think you can do in iOS 14. Is that right? Or did I make that up? Um, I think you can do, I think it's mail and browser, but nothing else, right? Yeah, right. I thought that's correct. I, I might have that wrong. But anyways, I always thought it was bananas. And I always thought, not just Mike, of course, but all these people who are like living their lives a quarter mile at a time, now, uh, living their lives by by using snoozing and this and that and all these other like super pr- proprietary things in this client that's working with like arbitrary IMAP servers in many cases. Like it just, I never understood it. I never got it. And I still mostly don't. And I agree with you, Marco, that, you know, there's, there's a couple of things about, Hey, that I, I consider non-starters most, especially I want to keep my email address and I can't right now. I would have to use a Hey.com email address. And in general, this is not something that I feel like I need to fix. Like my email sucks. I get way more than I want. I feel compelled to respond to way too much of it. And I haven't gotten to the point that Marco has where I can just outright ignore everything. I'm getting better with it. <laughs> I'm getting better at ignoring it every passing day, but I'm still not great at it. Um, but the, in so many ways, this was not a problem I felt like I needed solving, but I wanted to try it. And 
I really am surprised by how much I enjoyed it, especially since like on the Mac, on the Mac, most especially I have no interest on a, in a web app. Like again, my, my current email is Google apps for my domain. I open the web app, uh, maybe once a month, maybe, you know, I'm not a John Syracuse who lives in it and I don't, I don't know how you live in it, John, to be honest with you, but, um, I much prefer having native apps. But there are a lot of really, really clever things about Hey that are really making me think this might be fixing problems that I've always wanted to fix but couldn't find a good way to do it. And I can dig into the specifics, but before I do that, John, any other things you want to say about what Marco or I just said? Yeah, I think uh, before we start detailing the, the specific features of Hey, I this is going to sound like it's just a giant ad for Gmail, but I think it's going to explain how I use my email and uh, why Hey... Well, I'm not going to say it's not a good fit for me, but it's going to explain that the advantages of Hey based on how I use Gmail. So I, I used to use native apps for a long time. I had a bunch of favorite applications. Um, and then Gmail came out, and Gmail solved a lot of problems I had with the way I worked with Mail. So my way for working with Mail is I try to funnel everything into one big fire hose, and then I just have a huge amount of rules to file the mail automatically as it comes in. Back in the day, I was filing into folders, filing into subfolders, you know, doing stuff with the messages, marking as read, marking as unread, forward, you know, filing a duplicate. Like, just my mail is processed, and it's processed by a series of rules, <laughs> right? And one of those would be, like, filing spam, but, but, you know, like, actual rules, right? Very, 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 very little of my mail ends up in what most people think of as an inbox. Pretty much all of it gets auto-filed somewhere, categorized and auto-filed. And I, this is how I've always used email, because... I've always had a lot of email. Back in the day, the reason I had a lot of emails, I'd sign up for like every mailing list. It, the Perl community was big on mailing lists. So was the Unix community. I just had tons of mailing, tons of very high volume mailing lists. So that got me on the bandwagon. That sounds awful. That got me on the bandwagon of like auto filing because there's no way to deal with mail if you're on a mailing list. You certainly have to auto file the mailing list. In fact, some of my favorite email clients had features specifically for mailing lists where you could say, this email is for a mailing list. Please handle it and it would file it away for you. But I do that with all my mail. Right. And that was a super pain. First of all, it was a pain back in the day when all email was like pop because you had the problem of like you're on one machine and you start your email client and it pulls some messages and they get sorted. And then you go on another machine and it hasn't seen those messages yet from using pop and it has to get the same messages again. Right. And that would mean I had to have the rules that had to have the same set of rules on every computer. Oh. And there was no cloud sync. Like this is the <laughs> 90s. right? There's no cloud syncing of rules. And it was, and they didn't, these apps didn't even make it easy to bring X. There was no even an export and import. So I had to re-implement the rules. This is especially egregious if I wanted to check my personal email at work, which is definitely a thing that I've always wanted to do because you might get an email about something about, you know, somebody in daycare or something like, you know, I, I'd have to re-implement the rules on my work computer, which was another big pain. Um, Gmail solved that big problem for me because suddenly my email wasn't, uh, you know, it wasn't a native application. And even with IMAP, trying to apply rules to IMAP, like server-side rules would help, but server-side rules were implemented spottily. Like Exchange had server-side rules, but people didn't have personal Exchange accounts. And IMAP could sometimes have some kind of server-side rule, but it really depended and it depended on the client. POP didn't have server-side rules at all, so it was all client-side. But Gmail just solved that. It's like, okay, look, your rules are where everything is. It's all in the cloud, right? It's a web browser. You can open any web browser that can load Gmail, can see your mail. It's always going to look exactly the same because the mail is literally not on your machine. It's someplace else. And if you define a rule in Gmail, that rule is everywhere you see Gmail. Like no more defining multiple rules, no more syncing rules, no more nothing. And all of your mail is available everywhere. And Gmail 
had uh, features that sound like they would appeal to Marco. I'm not sure if he used these when he first got when Gmail first came out. Gmail would take all of your old mail. The very first thing when I got Gmail, besides reserving my name, uh, was to upload literally all of my old email that I had at that time. And, and like I, I'm sure I'm missing some stuff. I just did search in Gmail. I can go back to the 90s in my, in my Gmail Goodness. email, right? I put like day one, I just said like exported everything from whatever I was using, probably Entourage at that point, exported my entire email history and shoved it into Gmail. And Gmail dutifully took it down. Um, and the other thing that once it did that is like, I'm also big in email searching. Guess what Google's really good at? They are really good at search. <laughs> the search is fast. The search is good. The search is never broken, right? Um, so I got my rules in one place, and I've got really good search, and it's the same everywhere. And the final thing is I have so much email that I don't have like a multi-gig archive of email on my local disks anymore, right? So I save disk space on top of it. Uh, and Gmail has a bunch of extensions and features and keyboard shortcuts and other nerdy things, right? So that's why I like Gmail, right? What Hay is bringing to the table is, and, and by the way, I, I needless to say, I think my way of dealing with email is good. Like otherwise, I wouldn't do it. It's efficient. It's <laughs> nice. It, it lowers the the cognitive burden of email for me. The fact that everything gets sort of auto filed away, I can look at it in different buckets and sub buckets and deal with them when I want to deal with them. Whereas the stuff that actually is in the inbox is so few that I know they're actually important. Like I built this system myself. Hey, is telling people you're not going to do <laughs> regular people are not going to do what I did. They're going to sit there and build up a series of like dozens and dozens of rules over the course of many years and tweak them. Like people are never going to do that. Even if you show them how to make a rule and a filter and how nice it is, they won't keep up with that process because it's, you know, they're just, that's not their inclination. And honestly, you know, it, I'm not saying it's a lot of ongoing work, but I did put a lot of work in up front when I was younger to establish all these rules and systems, right? Hey, is a system that says, since most people won't do that and don't want to do that, and many can't do that. Hey has a system already, right? Hey has a series of rules, a series of buckets, and rules that apply to those buckets, an interface that, that applies to them, and it's already established. You don't do anything. You just sign up, and it's like you're getting this set of rules. Now, the reason Mike Hurley and many other people fret about email applications, they're like, oh, but that's not exactly the set of rules that I want. That's not the appeal of Hey. The appeal of Hey is to people who have never had a quote-unquote system for email. Having a system is way better than having no system. And Hey system is pretty good, as we'll get into in a little bit. But I think that is the main appeal. If if you have never had a system for email and have just treated it as this giant avalanche that lands on your head that you just like swim your way through, like Hey is just going to be relieve you of so much stress and pressure and annoyance in your life. If, on the other hand, you have a bespoke hand-assembled a complex system, or even if you have a notion of an exact system that you want, Hey is not going to match that because Hey is the system that they made. It's not the system that you have in your head, and it's certainly not the system that you may have implemented directly. Um, that said, seeing Hey's system gave me some interesting ideas for my system. Right, a lot of the ideas <laughs> I've had, a lot of the ideas I've had for my system, I've seen reflected in other things. I forget, I forget what it was. Maybe it was Inbox or something. One, one of the companies, I think Gmail might have even bought them. A couple of companies the most, in the most recent decade or so who have come out with email things had features that are like, ha, huh, that is a great feature. I know because I've been doing that since, you know, 2001, right? But now we're finally getting to uh, the reverse where I'm seeing email applications that have ideas that I haven't even thought of and I'm interested in trying out. So 
Casey, you want to take a crack at describing what the heck Hay does to your email? What What is the system that you get out of the box with Hay? Yeah, certainly. And both of you feel free to interrupt me at any time. Uh, and just very briefly, I think you're describing me. Like, I don't have a good system. I have some labels in Gmail that I almost never use. I do use native apps connected to Gmail as, you know, faux IMAP servers. And and it 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 doesn't work great, but it works. Um, so what is, what is Hey all about? So Hey, most especially and primarily asks you to do a little bit of, a little bit more work up front with the theory that it will provide oodles of time savings over time. So as you get an email from someone that Hey has never seen before, or someone that your, your email address has never seen before, when that email comes in, Hey will ask you to classify it as one of three different things. And one of them is the inbox, which I'm just going to call inbox because it's silly. Uh, one of them is the inbox. And that's stuff like your, your partner or your kid's school or something like that. that these are things that you really want to have in your face, right? And the next bucket is what they call the feed. And so these are things that maybe you'd be interested in seeing, but you can really do it on your own time and you can just kind of, you know, wade through them, not unlike you would wade through, say, your your Twitter feed. And so you can start from most recent and keep going backwards and just kind of see what sorts of things have come in. So these would be newsletters or updates about things that aren't critical, maybe like a shipping notification, for example, or something like that. Things that may, may not be critical, but you still kind of care about. And then a third bucket is what they call paper trail. And this is for actually shipping notification might be a great example for this too, but things like receipts, you know, stuff that you want to be able to refer to at some point, but the likelihood of you actually needing to read it on, you know, as it's coming in is slim. So you can, you can call it up, but you probably don't need to see it as it's, as it's coming into your inbox. So it doesn't need to go in your inbox. It doesn't even need to go in the feed. It can just go straight to the paper trail. So if you want to refer to that Amazon receipt, you certainly can, but you don't necessarily need, need to see it arrive in your inbox. And then on top of that, they have, you know, the standard, uh, the, the standard things in 2020 for all email, you know, uh, I want to set this aside and reply to and, and, and have it for easy reference later. I want to reply to this later, which is slightly different. Um, and if there's a few other things that I'm not thinking of, but the, I, oh, and you can screen, uh, emails out. So that's not really blocking them necessarily. It's, it's slightly different than spam. I'm not entirely clear how it's different, but it's different. Um, and, and so the idea is that it's, it's a very, I view it anyway, as a fairly low maintenance way to establish a system. And I didn't think of it that way until you described it, John, but I think you hit the nail on the head that this is providing me anyway with a system that I never really had. And to some degree, I could probably replicate this in Gmail, but I do like the way this works. I do like the way the web app works. Like I'm not a huge web app fan, but I do like the way it works. The mobile apps are also very good. And I assume that as I'm you know, filing these, these, these senders into these three different buckets, it's certainly even already, even just a couple of days, bringing my inbox such that it's a little bit, it, it's a little bit, um, less chatty, which is exactly what I want. And I, I also do not receive an overabundance of email, but I mean, the three of us from ATP alone probably get 10 to 20 emails a day. And I typically try to read all of them and I respond to almost none of them, but 
you know, that's high, that's, that's relatively chatty. I am subscribed to some newsletters, but not a lot. And so that can get chatty. And I just get, I mean, I think everyone, I don't think this is unique to me. Everyone gets more email than you want. And so I guess it's a far cry from when I was like 15 and just begging somebody to send me an email. You know, I was just so waiting for somebody to send me an email. It'll be amazing. Um, and, and so I do think that Hey is very, very good at giving me slash the Royal U a system to work with. And I think it's very well thought out and very clever. And another example, I don't recall what the feature's name is, but I saw somewhere that you can like highlight a specific portion of a email and store that somewhere. I don't even remember how you do that, but I guess in summary, and I'll stop talking, but there's, it's, it's very clear to me that a lot of thought has been put into how do people use email and how can we meld this service around that? Now, if you're John Syracuse, maybe this isn't a good fit, but if you're me and don't really have a system, like I keep saying, this is a really, really clever and interesting way to do it. Yeah, and they take advantage of the fact that they write the app. Like, to be clear, Hey is not an email client. Hey is an email service like Gmail. The, the email is all on their server. And again, you're trusting them because they're a good company to do, you know, encryption. They can't see your email. It's all encrypted in transit and in rest. And it's all web interface. So you can see the same thing everywhere, yada, yada. Uh, the system has a lot of features, like I said, that I would love to see elsewhere or be able to implement because they control the client. They can do things like uh, when you view the different categories, like when you view fa- the paper trail versus your inbox and stuff, they look different because you consume them differently. Like the feed looks more like you're looking at an RSS reader, like it expands all the emails and you can just scroll through it because that's the nature of the feed, right? And the type of features they have are like things that people do with email. They have a dedicated files view at the top level because so often you're looking for that one file and even though you may get a lot of emails, and of course, in any email client, you can search for things with attachments. Do you remember the syntax in your weird email client to find files that have attachments? Do you want to sort by attachment by clicking the header thing? Just go to the files view. It shows you all your files, right? Stuff like that is sort of very thoughtful ways to just, you know, if you make a general purpose tool, oh, we have a query syntax, or we have uh, customizable sortable column headers, like every Microsoft email client. That's too much of a barrier for most people. And even me, like I'm no longer copying my rules around everywhere. But uh, every time I set up like my preferred native uh, email client, I have to rearrange the columns and size them the way they want them because that's not cloud synced. Everything should be cloud synced, people. It's modern day. But anyway, they're not. I want my columns to be in this order. And this, you know, this email client decides that that's not the default. And sometimes, in the worst case, in every new folder that I make in my local email client, this is mostly for work where I'm not using Gmail, obviously, um, every new folder that I make has the columns back in the default order, right? All, all of that, you can learn to use an application, and you can make a general purpose application that has all the features, like, oh, I can, whatever you think you can do, and hey, I can do that too. It's like, yeah, but they already did it for me. They already made a, a big button with the five most likely things that I'm going to do. You know, and some things you can't do, like, what if I want to have a different view for a particular label or folder in Gmail where I want the emails to be bundled by sender and expanded? I can't do that in Gmail. I would love to be able to do that, right? And like you just said, saving a snippet of one thing from the other. Gmail has a bunch of sort of respond to this later, save it later type things. And But like, hey, is such a comprehensive worldview, like that if you buy into it, it will take a lot of work off your plate. And they, and they try to lead you through it by sort of, you just start using the app and you don't know the system because you didn't make the system. It leads you through understanding what the system is by asking you a series of questions. And in general, I think part of the appeal 
is that it makes you feel empowered. Make, I, I imagine it would make people feel more empowered over their email than they have been in the past because immediately you're asked to make decisions about your email, value judgments about your email. An email will come in, or at the top of the app, it'll be like, you have five unscreened emails. You're like, oh, it's time for me to be a screener. Well, let me just look at my emails. <laughs> and, you can, and you can thumbs thumbs up and thumbs down, just like in Gladiator, you know? Like, just this email, no. <laughs> this email, yes, right? And then if you say yes to it, you can say, what kind of email is this? And it describes examples and says, if it's this kind of email, put it here or there. That, I think, is one of the the weakest system, weakest part of their system. You know, obviously, the system's not going to be perfect for everybody, but they do ask you to make decisions about emails. And most of the time, it's good and empowering. But occasionally, well, maybe it's just me because I'm so picky about my email. You'll get an email and it will say, tell me about this email. Do you want to see email from this or not? And unlike the powerful case where you're like, no, I never want to see this email. This is garbage. You're like, well, it's email from something related to like the, you know, parent teacher organization. So it's not like I never want to see that email. But my choice is it's not a receipt. I don't want it in my inbox, but do I? Maybe I do want it in my inbox. What if it's like an emergency? It's not a paper trail. Maybe it's feed. Like, even when you know what the systems are, because the system has fairly chunky buckets, right? And it's not a general purpose system for doing this where I can't just write a new set of rules. And by the way, I looked at Gmail when we were talking about this. I have uh, approximately 200 rules in Gmail. And God knows how many labels. You kind of get into a situation where you can't decide what bucket it's in. And you just have to pick the next best one. It's not the end of the world. You can change your mind later. It's, you know, nothing is destructive, but... That's something to keep in mind that you really have to buy into the system. The system is necessarily simpler than the one you would build exactly for yourself. Uh, but but other than that, I think the overall effect of using this, and in case he was experiencing this, it suddenly seems like you have less email. It seems like you seems like you get less email. It seems like you have less email nagging you, and it's still there. It's just like in my system, being transparently shuttled away to the correct bins for you to look at at your leisure, and you've put them in bins based on. Your expect your own whether you know it or not based on your own personal expectations of how you're going to deal with them. Things that are in the paper trail you do not need to look at even to mark as read just to get it off of your little unread to do list. They're auto filed in the paper trail. You never see them. They're there if you need them. You can find them in search, but they don't become a to do item for you. Don't even need to click on them once to make them unbold in your email client. Like it just and then you look at you open hey and it's like oh no new email and. For most people, that's a good feeling. <laughs> Unlike 15-year-old Casey, you like seeing when there's no new email. Like, I forwarded... I have so many freaking email addresses. They all go through Gmail. But I forwarded one of my lower volume ones to Hey. But I still kept getting it in the other places. And so I can compare. What is it like to to read this email address, like my old way, versus doing it at Hey? And I'm like, at first I thought, is everything really getting forwarded? Because every time I look at Hey, it says there's nothing. And then, you know, and, and even for things like spam, I don't know what they're doing for spam filtering, but I get garbage spam in the quote unquote real email address that I look at with like mail that app or whatever. I never see that spam and hey, maybe they just have better spam filtering too, but it doesn't bother me with it. It doesn't ask me to do anything about it. I don't know. So I, I, I hope we've described hey well enough. I, the reason I'm mostly excited about it, despite the fact that I'm probably not going to use it because I have my weird system, is that I love seeing people innovate in what seems like a dead space. I think I, I would recommend Hey to anyone who I see who looks like they do not have their own system 
for email to try this system. Because obviously, if you don't have a system for your email by now, you probably are not the type of person who's going to build a system. And I think the Hey system is pretty good. And it shows what you can do when you control everything. They control the server side. They control the client side as much as Apple will let them. Like, And they've made very different choices. It does not look like a normal email client. It doesn't behave like a normal email client. It behaves like, hey, in the same way that Gmail on day one did not behave like any native email client. Some people didn't like that. I thought it was great because of what it was. It was unabashedly a Google web-based server-side thing. And its interface didn't look like Outlook. It didn't look like Apple Mail at all. Like, there's no pretense of it being anything like that. Uh, And that's refreshing. And, of course, Gmail was like, what, 2004? Like, you know, a decade and a half ago. Uh, And I feel like with the the exception of a few other innovative uh, client-side things like the what was it i don't remember all the names of them mike Hurley would know but there have been a couple of client-side innovations but i until gmail there hasn't been any sort of comprehensive rethink of the entire thing from top to bottom until hey so i recommend everyone check it out it's a free trial thing and like i said if you pay for your name and then just cancel the next month i think you can do it monthly i forget you keep that name forever everyone should at least check it out because the the final thing to say here is like since email addresses are so important, it's kind of important that hey.com stays around, right? Because if they decide five years from now, oh, we're not going to do email anymore. Well, you know, maybe they'll, they'll, because they're a good company, they'd set up forwarding and everything, but that's a hassle and that's a disruption. So when selecting what your email address is going to be, if you're not a geeky person, I'm not going to recommend this. We're all going to say you should have your own domain. And that's absolutely true. You should absolutely have your own domain and use your own domain because then you're beholden to no one. But even then, it's a disruption. Like Marco was saying, it's a disruption to change your, your back end, not because your email address changes, but because it's a disruption to deal with where that name leads and you don't want to miss any emails and you don't want to move stuff around or whatever. But there is always the nagging thought in the back of your mind of like, if I sign up for this email service and I'm a normal person and I don't have my own domain, Am I going to regret it? Like, is this thing going to go away? Uh, and that's why, in general, I say sign up for email with companies that you have some faith will continue to be around. Now, 37 Signals slash Basecamp has been around for a long time. Hey, as far as I can tell from the outside, it seems really popular, and it's a pay service. So I think its sustainability is very sensible. It's easy to understand. How are they going to stay in business with this hey.com thing? Everybody who uses it pays them except for like free trial people, right? It's a very simple business model. People exchange money for goods and services. So there's some faith that'll be around. Gmail, one of the other reasons I was gung-ho on Gmail is like Google seemed like a pretty well-established company in 2004. Today, even more so, I am not in fear that Google will go away. Granted, Google cancels services all the time, but I think Gmail is probably too valuable for them for them to can it. Uh, this is where you can save this clip for the episode of ATP in 15 years when they sunset Gmail and I'm <laughs> frantically, trying, frantically trying to export 75 gigs of email, but I'll cross that bridge when I come to it. Was that a, a hyperbole or do you really have 75 gigs of email? How much email? Do I, remember that? That was another big feature of, of Gmail from day one. It's like, we'll, we'll give you like a, a gig of email. And the people are like, a gig of email for free? How can they do that? Um, is, this, is this just my email? Yeah, I it only I only have two gigs of email. It says uh, per, uh, that's how much it says percentage of two gigs used. And I'm only using one point three gigs out of my two gigs of email. But I think Whoa, if I was slow down, two- slow down. Uh, w- w- look at this closely because I'm looking at 
861 gigs of 1039 gigs used. Are you sure you're reading that right? Oh, that's not a period. Okay, that's a comma. All right. <laughs> oh, no. Uh, <laughs> that can't be right. One, well, 1,385 gigabytes of yeah, 2,000. You have, have 1.3 terabytes of email. Yeah. All right. Sorry. And apparently I have eight tenths of a terabyte, which is way more than I thought. Yeah. That's a little more than, than half of what I have. Yeah. Email is big. Um, but I, here's the thing with their account. I think if I was to approach two terabytes, it would just give me more room. Like, I don't think that's actually a limit. I don't know. Maybe we'll find out someday. But yeah, I don't. And unlike Marco, I don't delete my email. Oh, you're missing out. Like spam gets filed as spam and then gets deleted, whatever. But no, but why would I delete it? People delete it to get out of their face or to get some kind of emotional satisfaction. I don't need the emotional satisfaction and it's not in my face. Well, I'll, I'll tell you why. I mean, so it, it's it's kind of like a, a digital clutter management thing. Uh, so, so first of all, like a lot of the emails I get are notifications from my servers of various things I have to deal with. Uh, or various conditions that like thresholds keep crossing. So like, oh, the, the load on the server went too high. I'll get an email about it. You know, granted, I'm probably using email wrong for even sending this to email. But oh well, you know, don't at me. Um, so a lot of a lot of the email I get like literally has no value after a few hours uh, because it's some kind of notification for something, or it's like you know an Amazon shipment notification. Great. Amazon emails stopped including anything about your orders in the last couple of years, ever since companies were like scraping data out of them and everything. Um, and so Amazon emails are useless now. If I want any kind of Amazon status, I have to go to my Amazon account. So any email from Amazon is pretty useless after about five minutes too. There's all sorts of stuff like that where like I look at this and you know, this, this email, I don't need this ever. I will never, ever need to look this up or find this ever again. Even a lot of email that, that, that we get from, you know, either... So like an angry listener, maybe, who writes in and tells us how much we suck. Or if I'll get an email um, you know, for, to Overcast, uh, that's like you know, just a feature request that I've gotten a hundred times before. Do I really need to save all of those forever? Or can you look at it, make a quick judgment call, and think, you know what? Am I ever going to need to look for this ever, ever again? And a lot of times the answer is maybe. And, that, and I'll, so I'll archive those. But a lot of times the answer is no, I will never need to look at this again. And so I'll just delete them. I'm not deleting everything. Like I'm archiving a good amount every day. But there's also so much that I can just delete. Then that's less to store. It's less to clutter up search results when I do want to find something. Uh, it's less to manage. It's not counting against my storage limit, although I'm way under it for my current host, which is Fastmail. Um, it's, it's just it, it helps keep a little bit of clutter outside of my digital life. And these days, when you have infinite storage on everything, like story, like disks are so big, it's so easy to just collect garbage forever and to never delete anything. And then you end up with like overwhelming collections and larger storage needs over time and, and stuff like that. So like I like situations like this where I can look at it and just say, you know what? I can just delete this. I'm I'm never gonna need this again. Even if it was something nice, like like, you know, in real life. I will throw away greeting cards after a while. I enjoy them for a little while, and then I throw them away. That's physical. We're not talking about physical things. The beauty of digital things is they don't take up space like that in three dimensions. It's not in the same way anyway. But still, like it's it's useful to apply the, the heuristic. Like When you're looking at an email, when you're deciding what, like, I decide whether to archive or delete something. That's like I, I make a quick decision. And if it's something like a server notification that's, t that's already irrelevant by the time I even see half of them, then... Fine, delete. I'm never going never gonna to need this email again. 
Yeah, I, I think I only have one kind of email. Uh, one, yeah, I think this is maybe the first email that I, that I routinely get that I actually do delete. I, I don't delete anything. It doesn't take any space in my hard drive. It's all um, Google stuff. By the way, I someone said click on manage at the bottom to get your storage breakdown. Casey, you should do this too. Uh, because I don't have 1.3 terabytes of email. I have 12.22 gigabytes of email. What am I looking at in here? After you, uh, you click manage, it, sh- it shows a storage breakdown. Oh, I see it. I see it. I see it. 15 gigs. You have more email than I do then. And mine doesn't go back. Mine goes back to 2004. I don't think it goes back older. Mine than that. goes back to the 90s, but I guess I don't have a lot of attachments. Maybe that's building it up uh, the size. Anyway, the one email that I routinely delete is I have a uh, like a watch on uh, various websites to find my uh, cheese grater when they come up for sale. Wait, why? Wait, why? <laughs> Do you need more? Yeah. What? For what? Because I told you I was, I, was, I was dwindling. I was down to like two spares, right? Because they break every year or year and a half or whatever. I was down to two spares and I couldn't find them anymore. Like, oh, I, the the actual like dairy cheese. The actual thing that grates cheese. Oh, yeah, cheese. I definitely heard oh. Mac Pro. Like from a cow. <laughs> I thought you were talking about your 2008 Mac Pro. <laughs> no, the good cheese grater I like for my Parmesan cheese. Right. And I was, the, okay, yeah. the number of those were dwindling. And normally when the number would dwindle, I would just go online and I would search for one and I would buy it. But the last few times that they broke, I went online to search and I couldn't find any. So I'm like, I need to set up one of those like watch services that just watches for anybody anywhere on the web selling one of these things. Right. Uh, and so I do that. Uh, but of course, my search terms are like OXO cheese grater. Right. OXO makes a lot of cheese graters, let me tell you. So I get sort of a digest report. Uh, I don't know what it is. Every week? Every few days? Or no, every time it gets a hit, essentially. Every time I get a hit on this, I get I get a little report of like, here are all the OXO cheese graters I found. And 99.9% of the time, it's just all not my kind of cheese grater. Like, it's the other kinds, because I sell lots of them. And I delete those emails, because I'm never going to see them again, right? And it's not a lot of them, but that is the only email I think I routinely delete, other than obviously spam. Because and even spam, my file is spam, and then it gets auto-deleted after 30 days, right? Everything else, I just keep it. I don't have to make a decision about it. It's already auto-filed. It's already out of my face. It's not taking up a lot of storage. It, you know, and, and the value of doing that is, like, I do find myself doing, like, forensics and trying. Even if it was, like, Amazon notifications with no information about the product, I can correlate based on the dates of things or see if I got a notification about shipment while I was on vacation at this place or whatever. The paper trail. I do a lot of the paper trail stuff in, in my various systems and categorize them and Gmail lets me export them and all that other good stuff. Um, but anyway, uh, having even if your system is I just delete everything, you never know those people who delete everything after they read it and so they have literally no email. My mom does that. It's a surprisingly common pattern. I cannot... I, that's like my nightmare, but to each their own. But <laughs> if you don't have a system for email, uh, I recommend checking out Hey. And even if you're just, even if you're not going to use it for your email, like Marco's probably not going to use it for his email, check it out just to just to see what a company is doing with an app for a thing that everyone is familiar with. Everyone knows email and has used it all the time. It's so different and strange and interesting uh, that I think it's worth just signing up for a free trial to see what it's like. You have to actually send it some email. If you sign it up for a free trial and never send it an email, it's not interesting. You you like, And you can't just send yourself two emails. You have to like do the thing. Almost anybody with like an iCloud account can do this. You can forward a copy of your email. So you're not messing up your email flow or redirecting it or whatever. It's just a second redundant copy of the same email you're getting elsewhere. So it shouldn't be disruptive to your actual email system, but it will let you get a real flow of email into A. And do that for a week or two and just see how it goes. Yeah, I agree. I, I've really been impressed with it. And 
you know, they sponsored, uh, you know, last episode, this was entirely us. They, they couldn't have paid us to go on for this long about it. It's been in our show notes for like four weeks as usual. Uh, let's do some ask ATP. And I am genuinely looking forward to this because we got a question from John Allman, who writes, I find myself switching jobs about every two to three years in the startup tech sector, and I know Casey and Marco don't have traditional jobs, but would you all suggest moving data to my new company computer starting fresh? If moving, what's the best way? Target to smoke, migration assistant, et cetera. Thanks. So I actually really am deeply uninterested in this question because I feel like we've answered it a thousand times. And I have definitely put them in the show notes a handful of times myself, so I am I am not uh, without guilt here. But I'm starting to get a little frustrated and curious. Why are we getting this question over and over and over again? And John, you apparently have a theory. Yeah. Well, the reason why we answer it at least like once a year is because it's so common and everyone doesn't listen to every episode and yada, yada, yada. Like, so that's like practically speaking why we might answer it. But the real question is, why do we keep getting this? Why is everyone always asking us like this very specific question? I got a new Mac. I've got an old Mac. How do I get my crap off my old Mac onto my new Mac? And I think it like it reveals a ongoing problem area with computers, which we've discussed on and off in the show for many years which I just discussed today in the context of email rules. My problem back in the 90s and early 2000s was I'd get a new computer or you know have a computer at work and at home or whatever, and I wanted some stuff to be the same in both of those places, and I would have to manually make it the same because there was no cloud sync. Today, we're like, oh, you don't have that problem. Everything cloud syncs. So everything's, you know, it's either all on the server like your Gmail or... It syncs through iCloud or CloudKid or everything syncs through Dropbox and your files are the same everywhere. Syncing is a solved problem. Cloud syncing is a solved problem, yada, yada. Uh, but the fact that, you know, and we're getting these emails about Mac stuff, Apple stuff, but the fact that we keep getting this email about Macs in particular shows that this is not a solved problem in the personal computer space. Compare this to the phone space. How many questions have we gotten about, hey, I got a new iPhone how do you guys move your stuff from your old iPhone to your new iPhone? We used to get that question in one very specific context, which was like, do you do encrypted iTunes backups or not? But even that has gone away with iTunes going away and with encrypted backups going away because basically Apple solved this problem once and for all for normal people and mostly for geeks by making their own system for getting your stuff from your old iPhone to your new iPhone just work. Like, you get a new iPhone, you take it out of the box, it asks you if you want to get stuff from an old iPhone, and it does a little thing where it shows a funny image and you show it in the camera and it just sits there for an hour and it just does it. And we don't get that question. People aren't constantly asking us, how do I get stuff off my old phone and my new phone? That's how you can tell its problem has been solved. Absolutely not solved for the Mac. Even though Migration Assistant is really good, it's weird. First of all, it's not cloud sync, right? Like, or, or anything having to do with the cloud. And Macs aren't, you can't hold them in your hand and they don't have ca- all have cameras attached to them. So you can't do like what the phone does. They don't even have like, even though they have Bluetooth, sometimes you can't bring them near each other because they're big and heavy things. And I think this, this is, this problem is not solved and it's not likely to be solved anytime soon just because the data volumes are big. The computers are big and they're weird and different from each other. And the fact that we keep getting this question is just, you know, reinforcing this problem with personal computers and Macs, you know, 
specifically. It doesn't apply to iPads, doesn't apply to phones, which is part of the reason people love iPads and phones and stuff like that. And it's something that we've talked about. The most recent, most relevant example is I think when we talked about, oh, what the hell was it? Was it Chromebooks? Whatever, whenever Google made their initial pitch for, we're going to make a computer for you, but it's not like a computer. It runs everything on the web. And part of their little cartoon pitch advertisement for this thing was like, this is why I keep saying chuck it in a lake. You can chuck this thing in a lake. Don't worry. All your stuff is always automatically saved in the cloud. If you get a new one, you open it up, log into your Google account, all your stuff is there. Sound familiar? That's kind of like what we do with our phones now. The expectation in general, if you do cloud sync and cloud backups, if you do get a new phone, you don't even have your old phone. It fell overboard on a boat. Get a new phone, sign into your Apple ID, tell it to sync all your stuff down from your last iCloud backup. Your new phone now looks like your old phone did as of whatever the last backup was. And Google was promising that for their, I think it was Chromebooks, but whatever it was. And I remember when we talked about that on the program, I was gushing over it saying, yes, yes, this is great. This is how personal computers and laptops should be. They should be just like that where, you know, or like Casey says, everything is ephemeral. Like if, if I drop this in a lake, I just get another computer and let it churn for a while and it's back to exactly how my old computer was. And there's no missing stuff and no stuff that didn't transfer and no other limitations like that. Uh, I, You know, Google's Chromebook or whatever initiative I don't think it was fabulously successful for a variety of reasons, partly because web-only software is, you know, native software still has significant advantages that people like, and for a bunch of other less interesting, non-technical business reasons, doesn't seem like it's been hugely successful. But I think they had the right idea. At the time, I said, this is this is how computers should work. But they still don't work that way, and that was like, you know, five years ago or whatever it was. And I keep hoping it will. And we'll know that this problem is solved when we stop getting this question at ATP. But that day is not today. So are we actually answering it? <laughs> no, but you should just use migration assistant. That's what you just say. That's probably that's probably the right answer. But uh, if you want to be nerdy, uh, I'll put a post or a link to a post I put up about how you can do this with homebrew if you are willing to do it to, to suffer through homebrew and do some preparation. John's, John's answer is you are not alone. This is a problem. You have correctly identified it. We will answer it at least once a year, but I think we already did it for this year. So, uh, Let's see, 383. What episode are we on now? 390. Seven episodes ago. Yeah, yeah it's, it's, like, it's way too soon for us to answer it again. <laughs> oh, no, I'm sorry. That was about my new MacBook Pro. Maybe I lied. Maybe it wasn't that episode. All right, there's... there's see, uh, if all of our, if all our episodes prayer. were in Gmail, I could find it real quick. Oh, there <laughs> it I should, is. I should email myself the show notes. That's another system I have, by the way. This is a this is an anti-pattern that nobody should do, but that I do because, I don't know, like I, I, I invented this anti-pattern. Emailing crap to yourself. <laughs> oh my gosh. I email crap to myself all the time because I know my system will file it away and I know it's super easy to search. It's like email was my first Instapaper before Marco made Instapaper. <laughs> and, I, <laughs> and I still use it for that. I, obviously, I still use you know, Instapaper and other read-it-later services for that purpose, but... I still email myself, myself stuff. By the way, if anyone wants to make an iOS app to please a single customer who's willing to pay at least, I don't know, I'd pay $30 for this app and no one else would. Uh, mail to Self. Mail to Self used to be a cool application that all it did was you had a share sheet and it would mail something to yourself in a single tap. I want that application to exist. If I ever write an iOS app, it'll probably be Mail to Self. Couldn't um, you do that with shortcuts? No. I mean, you can do, everyone thinks they can do it. They're like, here, look, I made a shortcut to do it. It's like, no, but I actually have more specific requirements, really. Like, when I do it on a tweet, I want it to get the body of the tweet and a link to the tweet and write the subject just so. It's it's more complicated than that, right? Uh, it's not as simple as just, 
oh, uh, something's on the pasteboard and it's the URL, put it in an email. Like, yeah, you can do that. I have 50 shortcuts to do that. My requirements are actually more complicated than that. And the old mail to self thing would do my complicated requirements. And using mail, using the share thing and saying mail, that does you know, 50% of what I want, but I have to type in my own email address every time. I just type in the first three letters and it auto-completes, but it's still one extra step. I don't want to compose. I just want it to be done in a single tap. So obviously, just like my other apps, if you have one very specific thing you want done in a specific way, just write the damn app yourself. Then you can make it do exactly <laughs> what you want and you'll be the only customer and you'll be fine. So in keeping with my two other applications that are very, 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 very tailored to my specific needs, if and when I write an iOS app, it'll probably be this mail to self thing. That might be the quickest scope creep I've ever witnessed. Oh, just want to send an email to myself. Well, if it's Twitter, it needs to do this. If it's this, it needs to do that. Like, it's mostly Twitter. That's the thing. But when I get when it's Twitter, I want the, the entire text of the tweet to be in there. And I want a link to the tweet. And I want the date. And I want the sender. And I want the subject to say the, you know, if, like, that's useful to me because then I can search for it later in my email. Like, that's how, if you wonder, how how, how is Babby formed? How is ATP show notes formed? Um, boy, this is some old crusty memes we're getting out here. Um, <laughs> I email stuff to myself all week long that gets auto filed into the, here's what you're going to build the show notes from. And then I process them in whenever I have time to process them by going through the queue, finding the things that I emailed to myself and not leaving my email because all the text that I need to assess whether this is a thing I want to go into the show notes or not is in the email. Like, so if I just got the tweet URL, I'll be clicking on tweet URLs all the time to say, what is this tweet about? What is that tweet about? What is this thread about? Right. And that's sort of my queue of stuff that builds the show notes. And I just worked my way through that queue. Um, and that queue is never zero. Like the queue, there's stuff in the queue right now. But normally right before a show, I will take one more brief pass at the queue and see if there's anything pressing. That's that's my crappy system. That, I mean, I know I'm sure productivity gurus are now cringing that you should never use email as an inbox and you shouldn't use it as a queue and you shouldn't email yourself stuff. Quiet. I have a system. It works for me. <laughs> All right. And John Demko writes, with iOS apps coming to macOS, will iPhone-only apps be rotated appropriately for the Macintosh display? Will iPhone-only apps finally be rotated appropriately on an iPad in landscape orientation? I don't see that. I mean, maybe it's tough. So it's funny because the fix that I am waiting on review for in peak of view has to do with rotation lock in the onboarding screens. And in... In iOS apps, you can say on an application level, you would like this to only be portrait, only be landscape or support, you know, only only head up portrait rather than feet up portrait and so on. You, there's different things you can you can enable. And so it's not exactly cut and dry, right? Like you could have an app that says I am locked to portrait. Well, then what do you do? And then there's apps that maybe they're a little bit better in portrait, but they kind of support landscape, which especially in today's phones is like a uh, like a postage box or like a you know a slit in a door where you would stick a letter these things are so darn the, the aspect ratio is so so very tall to so not very wide um to directly answer the question i don't maybe they would auto rotate if the app lets them but i just don't see that happening i think they would be assumed to be portrait what do you think marco i think on the mac iphone only apps will literally just show up as non-resizable iPhone-shaped rectangles in portrait orientation. And so they're going to be weirdly small windows. Um, I don't know which phone they will simulate. 
um, like you know, obviously iPhones have multiple different screen sizes they could be. They, I seriously doubt they would be resizable. I think it's going to be a fixed size, and we just don't know which size that's going to be yet. Um, because it, one, the problem is, like, iPhone apps are not written to be resized, t- typically. You know, you can do that. You can write it that way if you have a universal app that's made for iPad multitasking as a universal binary with the iPhone app. Like, you can do that. But you, but Apple can't assume that all apps do that. So with this, for this question, I assume this is about, you know, because John right, right here says iPhone-only apps. So typically for an iPhone-only app, you're not writing in, you know, resizing support. Rotation is another thing, but rotation, you know, it doesn't really make sense on a Mac to support rotation on iPhone apps because if it's not resizable, what's it going to do? Like offer a diagonal drag handle, but like it just only snaps to the two orientations that it could be in, but it's still like the same size rectangle. <laughs> like that's not, that's no good. So I have a feeling it's going to be very, very simple on the Mac. You get non-resizable rectangles that are the size of one of the phones. Um, and then on iPad, that's an interesting question, like whether they would finally actually allow the, <laughs> the like correct version of uh, of iPhone apps to be shown, like you know, with proper rotation and maybe a little bit bigger. Since they are, do they still show in like the four inch screen size or the three and a half inch screen size, whatever it is? Um, anyway, I don't know if they would do it there because on the iPad. First of all, you're running in a different environment, and it would be a little bit more work, slightly more work, for them to enable like UIKit to have a, have an exception where it tricks the app into being able to rotate between portrait and landscape, but only still in this black box in the middle of the screen for these you know iPhone only apps. And second of all, on the iPad, I think one of the reasons that they've always made the experience pretty bad for phone apps that are not optimized for the iPad, but that you happen to run there anyway is that they want developers to make iPad apps from their iPhone apps. Like, they want us to make universal apps. Apple would probably make the decision of, like, not only do we not want to spend additional engineering time to make this nicer, we specifically don't want to make it nicer to force developers to make iPad apps. Now, you know, that's a, that's a thing they've done for a while now, and with some success... Some not success, like Instagram is a big one. But um, that seems to be their position on iPad. Uh, but on the Mac, it's a different scenario because you're in a totally different environment. And having a bunch of like fixed iPhone-sized little rectangle windows is totally fine on the Mac. So that's what I think they're going to do. I don't remember if uh, Steve Trout and Smith or Guy Rambo or somebody uh, actually started running iPhone apps on the, the DDK and determined the definitive answer to this question i have vague memories of it but i don't remember specifically but anyway my my guess is actually that they will allow rotation of iphone apps on the mac and ipad apps and it won't be by grabbing a drag handle i assume it'll be a menu command because you know there's iphone apps on the iphone don't have a menu bar but on the mac they do and there's all sorts of crap you could put in there and one of the things i would imagine they put in there would be rotation just because you know it's you have the flexibility to do it the mac screens are big enough to do it iPhone apps support different features in landscape versus portrait, depending on the app. And so to get access to those features, I think they'll allow you to rotate it with the menu command. Fingers crossed. All right. And then rounding out the triplet of John's this week, uh, John Larson writes that John Syracuse extols the virtues of having multiple backups of digital treasures. Thus, I wonder what precautions he takes against the loss of physical treasures in his attic. Fire, floods, tornadoes, bugs, mold, etc. How does he protect his analog archive? This is masterfully executed because this is such a trolley question written in such a genuine kind way 
I applaud you, John Larson. This is very well done. John Syracusa, please answer. What's trolly about it? Uh, I mean, this is getting to the heart of why I love computers. Uh, digital bits can be copied uh, losslessly. Uh, if you have uh, good checksums, you can keep them the same forever. Things deleted digitally are completely deleted but can be restored. Uh, going back to the, the fundamentals of me as a little kid, you can write a word and backspace over it as many times as you want, and you will never wear through the paper because there's no paper, right? Uh, that's the beauty of digital things. It's why I love computers. It's why I feel comfortable preserving things in computers, whether they be, uh, you know, 12 gigabytes of email or over 100,000 photos. Digital. I like digital. In the meat space world, <laughs> everything sucks and there's no way to mitigate and you know against disasters and floods and bugs and mold because i can't easily make a perfect copy of all my physical belongings elsewhere in three other places i i you know the, that's that's the physical world and unfortunately there are limitations in the physical world where doing anything to have sort of precautions and and care and backups and and mitigations costs money it costs money, it costs time, it costs space. I don't have enough of those things to take any precautions. So what precautions do I take against the loss of my physical treasures? Almost none. I mean, I my house is up to code. I have smoke detectors, but the bottom line is I almost nothing. I can't I can't I don't even it's not even my house isn't air conditioned first of all, but my attic where the stuff is is both not air conditioned and also not heated. So I don't even have climate control. No rain gets in. Like my house is weather tight, but beyond that no. So all my capacitors are probably blown. Things probably have mold in them. Mice, spiders, you name it. Uh, and why don't I do anything else? Because I can't. Like, I have a life to lead. I have limited resources. I'm doing the best I can. The physical world, meat space sucks. That was sufficiently depressing. <laughs> yeah, that's why we all have computers, because it's a place where you can make a perfect world, where everything is just so, because it's artificial. So yay for computers. Boo for meat space. Yeah, the world we make is so perfect. <laughs> Well, you know, if it's not, we can always fix it. And you can keep trying to fix it again and again and again. Whereas my capacitor is blowing all my Macs and leaks stuff all over the place. I can't go up there and fix that. John, I wish you the best of luck in your second life. Thanks to our sponsors this week, Squarespace, Bombas, and Eero. And thank you to our members who support us directly. If you want to join them, you can get access to things like our bootleg feed uh, or an ad-free show. See for yourself at atp.fm slash join. Thank you very much, and we'll talk to you next week. Now the show is over. They didn't even mean to begin. Because it was accidental. Accidental. Oh, it was accidental. Accidental. John didn't do any research. Marco and Casey wouldn't let him. Because it was accidental. Accidental. Oh, it was accidental. And you can find the show notes at atp.fm And if you're into Twitter, you can follow them At C-A-S-E-Y-L-I-S-S So that's Casey Liss, M-A-R-C-O-A-R-M-E-N-T Marco Arment, S-I-R-A-C U-S-A Syracuse, it's accidental I thought of one uh, mitigation that I make for my physical treasures. 
uh, specifically about the the issue of tornadoes and bugs. Uh, I live in a place. It's not the friendliest place to physical goods. That would probably be like like the high desert somewhere where there's no moisture too. Uh, but I can tell you that if I live someplace swampy or more south, the bug situation could potentially be much more dire because I feel like the warmer you get, the more bugs <laughs> are available. The harsh winters here do help tamp things down. So even though we have weather and we have snow and tons of rain and all that other stuff, in general, because the winter is going to come and freeze everything, we don't suffer from the massive infestations of life and mold. Like, because again, it's going to get dry here in the winter too. We have seasonal infestations, but no sort of prolonged ones. And I suppose the cold weather chases like the uh, various animals to invade our homes perhaps too. But anyway, one partial mitigation is, I guess, like not living in Florida. Yeah, that's no good. <laughs> Look, even like if you live somewhere super dry, then you have issues with anything made of rubber because it, it cracks and dries out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I suppose. I, I just always I'm always jealous of like you know when, even when we're in California, you look at these cars and from the '90s and they're like they're pristine because they don't have like road salt. Yeah, there's no rust or, or, <laughs> win, or winter or rust. They're just <laughs> you know they're just beautiful. Like I just love being in California and looking at all the old Hondas. It's like being in a museum. Like no Honda in New England looks like that anymore. Honda, Honda that age just looks like a pile of rust. John, I have a a funny bone to pick with you. I don't remember where it was I heard this. I don't remember if it was this show, Rectifs, or something else. But you said that you leave live photos off. And in and of itself, you monster. Why? But beyond that, it's, uh, I know they're, they're in your defense, there's some slight weird things with the 11 pro, I think where like if live photos are on, you can't use night mode or something along those lines. I forget the details, but up until I think in the last year or two for the first couple or whatever years that live photos were around, as far as I knew, it was only additive. So why the hell wouldn't you capture a live photo, man? What's wrong with you? Having live photos on is like leaving key clicks on, which I also thought was uncontroversial until I found these oh, monsters who are like, I leave key Get clicks on all here. the time. It's Get the same thing. Key clicks are legitimately bad. Key clicks are legitimately <laughs> unargu- inarguably bad. But how would you? why would you turn off a live photo? Well, here's here's the problem with live photos, and both of you manifest this problem. So there's one before I get to the, your problem with live photos, there is just off to the side. I just want to mention the privacy aspect of live photos because if they're on and you forget that they exist, the camera could be pointing in a direction that you don't want it to be pointing before you take a photo that you then send to somebody and they're able to see something you didn't want them to see. I will I will begrudgingly allow that. So that exists, but that you can manage if you're just if you have it on all the time, you just change your habits, right? The real problem with live photos, aside from the storage space, uh, is that if you just have them on by default all the time and you share photos, as you two do, and every single freaking one of them is a live photo, but 99.999% of them, there is no extra information or value in the live photo. I have to watch all of your live photos to find out, is this the one where there was something cute in the live photo? And no, it's not. It's the one where I get to see you adjusting your camera, but I'm looking at the grass and now looking at your kid. But I have to force press on my stupid phone every single time to make that determination because every single photo you share is a live photo. John, it's bad. I, I understand your perspective and your point, but you are empirically wrong. No, and, and here's the second thing that from <laughs> for me in particular: the quality of the live photo video. If it was the same quality as the photos, I might leave. 
I might leave it on by default, but it's so freaking blurry and gross that the only time I would ever do it is if I thought there was going to be additional value, as in this photo is cute, but really you got to watch the live photo to get some extra value of a cute thing that was said or done or whatever. Instead of just being on by default and me seeing you adjust the frame uh, and, you know, framing your subject in the photo, oh, it's just, it's terrible. So my note to both of you, it would be, have live photos on all the time, fine, but then turn it off on all the photos you're going to share where there's nothing of value in the live photo, so I don't have to force press on every single one of your pictures. No, that's what I do. I mean, I don't, I don't do a lot of shared albums, so it's not much of a problem there for me, but I, whenever I message a photo to somebody, and, and Tiff and I have this convention between each other, we've worked it out, and I do it to everybody, whether they know it or not, which is like, I choose whether I send you a live photo or not every single time, and if I send you a live photo, then I think you should watch it. But otherwise, like the vast majority of pictures I send, I turn off the live photo-ness of it when I send it. But I still leave live photos on for pictures that are being captured by the camera app because I still, you know, get some value out of that sometimes. And it's very cute. So who controls the one shared album viewers that I'm on? Because everything is a friggin' live photo. Uh, that would be Tiff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and see, the but, thing but is, look, but it's, it, I don't know if we can, can you control when you add a picture to a shared album? Can you make that non-live? You can. You can just turn here's the thing. If you if you take live photos all the time, surely for your benefit as well, you you only want you're having the same situation as me. When you look at these photos a year later, if they all have live photos, you won't know which ones have live photos with value or not. So you have to do this processing step where you go through all your photos and disable the live photo on the ones that you didn't want to be live photos. Otherwise, every single photo you have to force press on or otherwise tap and hold on or whatever to see the live photo animation. And additionally, many of Apple's UIs will autoplay the live photo when the thing comes into view. So now you're subject to that. So you have to process them. You have to say, was this a real live photo or just an incidental real life? And if you don't process them, then when you share, you, you know, you'll just share them all uh, the way they are. I don't, I don't want to sign up for that level of work, especially for the value, for the quality that it adds. Like I said, if they, if it was full quality on either side, maybe I would do it because then I'm thinking like, I'm just taking a bunch of miniature movies and it's full quality, but I don't I don't like the blurry than clear than blurry thing, and I don't want to process my pictures. So you'd rather have none of this information ever available to you than have it and ignore it all the time and, and have to and have to discard it manually on all the pictures I take. No, Why I don't do want that. And the thing is, I don't think they provide it? a lot of value because it's you don't so have to blurry. It. It's so blurry though. Just like, leave it's it. Too, it's not it's hurting too me. short and it's too blurry. If it was longer and high res, I would probably keep it and they would all be short videos, but it's not. It's way too short and it's super blurry. <laughs> and no. I've it's never had it me. on. I I I don't that that feature I'm not ready for that feature. That feature is not ready for me yet. And honestly, even if they made it max quality, I still would only do it as opt in. Like not by default. It's not hurting you, John. Just leave it alone. It's like a bee flying around you. Just leave it alone. It won't sting you if you just leave it a room. It is already made. It's taken. It's taken up my storage space, and it's giving me a new job, which is to process a hundred thousand new pictures I take every year or whatever, and and decide whether they're live photos or not. You know, I have to confess. Well, first of all, I have to confess that I am correct about your incorrectness about how you're handling this. But beyond that, I, Marco, you said a minute ago that you turn off the live photoness, and I, what? And so I was messing about while you two were bickering, and. It turns out this, you knew this. I did not know this. Uh, you said this. <laughs> you didn't um, know that you could do that? 
No, I honestly didn't. <laughs> because so, it's not obvious that like it doesn't look like oh what it, a lot of things in Apple's photos interface is like that's true. Can I tap that and do something? And you go and you find out is by trying it. And you're like oh it did something. What did it do? And then you had to figure out what it did. Exactly. So uh, what I did was I went into messages and I clicked the little photos iMessage app and then I found the most recent photo because it has the live image because why would you not capture it it doesn't hurt anything <laughs> anyway agreed he says as he sends someone a picture of his balls that's fine go ahead hey man that's a little treat just for you John <laughs> so. are they frequently out when you're taking pictures hey how I live my life is my business exactly you don't know you don't know you can't you can't have them out because then then you don't you don't know like reflections across the room you can have like that's a vase so that's a, like, oh, you know God, a chrome so vase or, or across the your, room. your wife could be walking by in her underwear and accidentally is in the frame like you don't know there's lots of failure modes of live pictures. <laughs> i assure you if Aaron was walking by in her underwear it would not be an accident if she was in frame but anyway <laughs> it's a good thing she doesn't listen to the show Anyway, the point is, so I went into Aaron's uh, iMessage conversation. I clicked on or tapped on. I hate it when I say click about touch stuff, but I just did it. I, I tapped on the you know uh, iMessage app for photos, selected the most recent photo that has a live component to it. And there's an X in the upper right, which I knew you know all along that was a tappable target to remove the photo. Turns out, little did I know, that the live photo icon in the upper left, it isn't just like that gray, very thin, if you will, overlay. It's it's a white circle with the live photo icon on top of that, which is supposed to indicate to Captain Dunce over here that you can tap it and remove the liveness. I had no idea you could do that. And now I will try to do better about not sending this stuff if it's not useful. <laughs> Oh, I'm glad I I'm glad I could help. The other thing is No, you, you didn't help from, me. Marco helped me. From from yeah, Marco said that. I, I'm the one who's talking about you, you have to go through and remove the live photoness from the ones where it doesn't have value. So obviously I'm talking about this feature. Um if you remember from the intro, what Apple said was uh, you know, you take it and the live photos are there and you can turn it off and I don't know if this is still true, but this was an intro. They said, and don't worry, we will, like, if you turn off the live photoness and it's been like 30 days and you haven't turned it back on, we will ditch that extra data to save you the disk space, right? So they will actually clean up the little whatever MP4 or whatever embedded thing that has the video thing if you turn it off. So be aware that turning it off is potentially destructive. Not immediately destructive. You can turn it back on, but after 30 days ago or so go by with it off, you go back to that photo. I don't remember what it was, 30 days, 7 days, whatever it was. You go back to that photo and you can't turn it back on because that data is really gone. So if you're super into live photos and you want to preserve every ounce of those blurry uh, one-second videos, whatever they are, uh, don't turn it off. You can turn it off and share it and then turn it back on. Like That'll work fine. I just can't believe how wrong you, you're so right about so many things. You are so wrong about this. You are so. So you're you're saying you're going to keep sharing pictures of your kids where I get to see, uh, two seconds of a shaky camera before the picture and after, because what does it hurt? What does it hurt? It hurts me because I have to check them all to see if this is the one, if this is the one where something cute happened. Why don't you just never check any of them? Yeah, seriously. Because sometimes there's something cute. It's random reward. You know, it's the Skinner box, right? (laughs) Sometimes there's a cute thing that happens before the photo. So you'd rather these things just never even exist than for you to just ignore them. No, I'm saying if you, if you, uh, if you opted into them, then I know every time I saw a live photo that I was in for a treat. Instead, now it's just a chore where I have to find the one in 100 treats that's going to be there. I am so sorry for your, for your difficult life, John. <laughs> uh, the other thing I do like about live photos is, and, and maybe, I, maybe I misunderstand it, and maybe it's not full res, but if you go into, if you're in the Photos app, you can change the, what do they call it, like the key photo? Do you know what I'm talking about, Marco? So you can go into like yeah, a live yeah. photo, yep. and you can edit it. That was from and, iPhoto. 
did I just say iPhoto? Whatever. No, um, that feature has been around since iPhoto. Oh, oh, sorry. So, yeah, you go into the photo, you edit it, and then there's some way. Now I don't remember how the hell Space you Spacebar, I think. No, well, no, I'm talking about on the phone, damn it. Uh, so you click the little. Spacebar God, the I said click again. Uh, I got to go to bed. Uh, you, you tap on the little live photo icon, and then there's several key photo options that you can take. And maybe if I, ch- if I ch- uh, choose a different one and change it, maybe I'm making the quality worse, but I've never noticed that to be the case. So that's another nice thing is if like you capture it and the smile just isn't quite right the way you see it in the photos app on your phone, then you can go back and say, oh, actually the next key photo option was perfect. And that's the one I wanted. And so now because I had this bonus data that wasn't hurting anyone, now I can change it to the even better picture. <laughs> hurting your disk storage and it's hurting me when you send it to me but uh, you can't you you can see frames from the movie thing but those aren't the same res as the photo so that's what i'm not sure about all kidding aside i i really don't know if if i'm losing i mean you can take a burst photo like when you do a burst then you have a bunch of you know individual pictures and you can pick the one that's good or whatever but anyway you do you i'll do me Different strokes for different folks. The, the problem I have with this is because I'm picking a fight with you, the entire internet, 100% of which always agrees with you about everything, even when you're wrong, like now. I'm sure there's plenty of live picture lovers out there. There are key click lovers out there. We're going to hear from them. Oh, God, like, no. Oh, please, no. Key click lovers, we all, all three of us agree you're monsters. Yeah, they're objectively wrong. We know them. We, we, we know people. They're objectively incorrect. I mean, I, in fact, I can, I can say, I can name names. John Gruber on the last episode of the talk show outed himself as a key click lover. He had some story about what he, why it makes him feel good. It's terrible. People are monsters. So, <laughs> yeah, like, you, you think you know somebody. Right? I know, right? Well, I mean, no, well, we've known this about John for a long time. I just, you know, it's just always fun to see him uh, publicly say it because he's just <laughs> getting himself in to be yelled at. Yeah, so I'm sure they're live picture lovers and they love it everywhere. Um, and we'll hear about them just as much. I do, and because it's the default, I bet most people have it on, right? Why? Because the defaults, right? They, most people don't change them. So I think everyone does live pictures, and I wonder how many people don't know live pictures are there or don't know how to, like, see the live picture when they're sent pictures or wonder what that little circle icon is at the top. But bottom line is I think the vast majority of people have live pictures on all the time. So I think I'm in the minority here. As you should be because you're wrong. Like I said, leave it, leave it on for yourself all the time. All I ask is when you share photos, make a conscious choice about the live pictureness. I all kidding. I don't think uh, I don't think you can make that choice when you're uploading to an album. But you can just. I think you should make the choice for all your pictures. Period, because you're getting yourself in the situation. But anyway, oh, if you're going to share, it's probably not going to be a thousand pictures. If you're sharing five pictures, just turn off live picture on the ones that shouldn't have it. Share them and turn it back on for all of them if that's what you want to do. No, but that's my point is that I don't think that I have any mechanism for disabling them as the, uh, dis- disabling the live photoness as it's going into a shared album, or at least not from the, not from iOS. You would have to like delete the live photoness on those photos before you add it. Right. No, it's not deleting. It's just disable it, then share them, then re-enable it. Ugh. Ugh. Or don't re-enable it because if you disabled it, you're showing it has no value. So just let the system delete them. <laughs> Also, this includes like you yelling something before a picture. That's true. You're sending you're sending that to everybody too, whether you know it or not. F- it smile. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Anything else? I don't think so. I actually, I, John gave us a better after show than what I was planning, but I was I was thinking about maybe possibly 
buying another Synology. Well, we'll see you later, live listeners. <laughs> what? Don't do that to me either. And uh, we will. Uh, we'll talk to you next week. Uh, you want to get another Synology? We got to save it for the show. But you f-ing bastard! Save I really it for the know show. What this is all about. We're not talking about it now. Save it. Oh God, you're such a dick. I'll talk to you about it in like two weeks. <laughs> oh, you're such a dick. This is all I'm going to think about for like two weeks yeah. now. By then, he'll have like five Synologies and return two of them. So we'll be able to talk about. It. <laughs> I can't believe you're thinking about another Synology. I I don't want to talk about it, but I so desperately want to talk about this. <laughs> That's why it's great to yeah. just leave it here. You're such a bastard.